Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everybody. This week, we are bringing you part one of an interview with the incomparable Tasha Bergson-Michelson. Now, the sound quality of this interview isn't quite what we're used to producing. It got a little funky because of some Wi-Fi issues, and we apologize for that. But we hope you still enjoy this interview. We're bringing you part one this week, and part two will be coming next week. Hope you enjoy. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we are delighted to have a very special guest with us today. And it's Tasha Bergson-Michelson. Tasha is a librarian and an educator. And she's here with us today to talk about how to engage with research and how to separate the credible from the dubious. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Tasha. Hi, it's great to be here. Tasha, can you share with us your educational trajectory and and how you got to where you are? How did you become a librarian? Mm, I was thinking about the shortest way to tell that story. (laughs) I was reflecting on the fact that I went to the same school for for kindergarten and first grade and then again for the first three years of high school. And other than that, I was in a different school every year of my life. And that kind of meant I wasn't, I wasn't very good at like doing the student thing because the curriculum was always shifting around on me. That really kindled a lot of, of curiosity, like the fact that I couldn't engage with what I was learning kind of in a straightforward way. Um, I just learned to get curious and to kind of build my own academic path, which did not work very well for me until I uh, wound up at Mount Holyoke College for undergrad where I was really taught kind of at its core that I could do anything I imagined if I set my mind to it. And originally what I set my mind to doing was learning Chinese sign language and um, doing research on how the People's Republic of China recruited teachers for the deaf. That took a lot of really lateral thinking as I was doing research because there wasn't, there weren't really any sources available, even in China, on the topic. And in the process of trying to carry out that research in graduate school, I discovered that what I really loved was secondary research. So finding sources, actually fighting with computer systems that were imperfect to give me what I wanted, and (laughs) thinking really, yeah, right, we all do that. And thinking really creatively about how I might try to answer questions where there weren't direct answers available. So I really got that notion about constructing knowledge early on. Then I happened to go, I happened to uh, skip school one day, even as a grad student, uh, with a friend who had never been to Cape Cod. We were both at school in Boston and she was in library school. 
And while we rode out to Cape Cod, she was telling me about the American Library Association's Bill of Rights, which is a grounding ethical document for librarians. Uh, and I started to really think about the social justice elements of fighting for freedom of speech and privacy and how librarians really live by that in a very real way. So I decided, you know, why not test out being a librarian? And I managed to talk my way into a job at a company that actually hadn't had one before. So I kind of was constructing my understanding of librarianship and a library at the same time. And over the next several jobs and also then becoming actually a parent and communicating with other parents, I came to discover that actually most people didn't have the same interactions in thinking about finding information that I did. Things that came naturally to me seemed awfully hard to other people. Uh, and I couldn't fully understand why, I guess I'd say. So if I think about like how I became a librarian, the really critical part of it isn't so much that I became a librarian as that I came to the realization that the way we teach research skills isn't super helpful. Um, <laughs> it's... I think of it, I think of it as being like old math and new math, right? There used to be this way that we were taught math where we were taught like, here is a process, memorize this process and implement it. Now again, now again, now again. And at some point, mathematicians for whom this came naturally said, you know what, that, that, like, that is not how I think about math at all. What would happen if we actually tried to teach students to think about math? The same way people for whom it, who are successful, who are naturally successful at it do. Um, yeah. and research, yeah, research skills are kind of the same thing. Basically, there was a lot of debate when I was in library school, which was right as the World Wide Web was becoming really a thing. Um, about can you, can other people learn to search? Like, is this something people can learn to do? And there's a lot of talk about, is it an implicit skill? And huh. the decision generally came down, myself included at the time, that yes, it was actually an implicit skill. And then I started to think about what does an implicit skill mean? And what that really means, that there are things that maybe people figure out how to do for themselves by trial and error because it is a natural fit for them. Mm -hmm. but then they don't remember that they learned it and that they figured it out, whether they were okay. aware as they yeah. were doing it, but you still learn these things. It's not like you're implicitly born, like knowing how to, I don't know, you know, read a theoretical work. It's something you learn to do, but you may or may not remember how you learned to do it. Right. Um, Just one, one day. Yeah, just one day, boom. Right. Marks make sense. It's a process. And so I've really been engaged kind of since like 2006 or 2007 in trying to work with colleagues in the library field and articulate what is it 
that expert researchers do and then experiment, like, how can we teach that to students? And I became a librarian then because I believe that being able to research effectively lowers the bar to curiosity. And also because I think that research skills are the basis of an enlightened democracy. So (laughs) there's the short answer. Oh, so thank you. Wonderful. What a great trajectory. And what a great sort of destination you find yourself in now. Not that it's over. I'm not saying it's over. (laughs) From your lips, let me just say. But uh, I mean, I just, I really do have the best job. I love the idea of revolutionary curiosity. Oh, yeah, me too. You're right. (laughs) I love that name for it. Absolutely. So here at The Dirt, um, we make every effort to find sources for our shows that are accessible, accurate, and freely available online. Um, However... Um, as we continue to learn, the internet is very, very big and very, very scary. Uh, can you walk us through the steps one should take in determining whether a source is reliable or not? Or is there something worse than not reliable? Uh, uh, probably, yes. <laughs> Actively misleading. Actively misleading and highly attractive. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, and, and I, I actually think, I mean, I got to be honest that one of these places where you see a difference between a lot of education around like evaluating sources is more in that not natural version of things. A few years back, the ACRL, which is the Association of College and Research Libraries, so the professional association, um, one of the primary pr- professional associations for college and university librarians decided to change their learning standards. Um, so in the past, we'd look at things like, can you use a catalog to find a book? Can you go find a book on the shelf? Do you know how to use a, I don't know, a table of contents, things like that. Um, now they have six what they call frames. In educational speak, we refer to these frames as threshold concepts, which means an idea that kind of when you, when it kind of clicks for you, it changes the way you view an entire area of learning or thinking. Oh, you level up. Yeah, and exactly. (laughs) Thank you for putting that in a much more accessible way. You level up. Um, And... We love these frames so much that actually, even though they're for college students, we use them with our sixth through 12th graders. And uh, so the one that I'm really thinking about in reference to your question about evaluating sources is the idea that authority is constructed and contextual. Um, and that's like, that's a lot of big words. <laughs> and these frames are designed to kind of like be groundbreaking to a novice. And sometime after that, you come back and kind of discover a new level. So actually, you just get to keep on leveling up within the concept of authority is constructed and contextual. But this is something we talk about quite a bit more than any of my students probably want to at school. We really try to train our students 
to be able to figure out how one source or author or another is claiming authority. How are they constructing that authority? Who do they claim to be talking to? What do they claim to value? You two have biographies on the DIRT's website to explain who you are and to set up your authority for running this podcast, right? So allegedly, allegedly, we'll just call that. It's the same kind of thing. So we were just talking about the source, the website, the conversation, and we were talking about um, Amber was expressing Sometimes I read an article in a journal, and then that same author has written a discussion of her scholarly work from the journal article in a voice that's good for the public. And that is a particular way that the authority of that source is constructed, because just the same way we weren't born doing math or understanding theory, also, as far as I know... PhDs are not a biological phenomenon, but actually something that was societally constructed. I mean, kind of the crux of the matter with our students is learning how to look at something and unpack why the author and also the publication are like, how is it that what authority are they claiming over this topic? Mm-hmm. And kind of what that means means about the evidence and arguments that we're seeing that they're using and thinking through what is it that I need at this moment and in the context of what I'm studying, how authoritative is this, right? Because we know that there are sources that move. Um, Amber, I'm thinking about when you gave some of my colleagues and I a lecture on aqueducts. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you can remind me of the precise, um, perhaps, terminology. But we were looking at a type of aqueduct that I believe had always been the way archaeology happened. Western scholars, this problematic Mm -hmm. language, but Western scholars said, oh, oh, they started in Iran and then this type of architecture spread throughout the world. Right? Yeah. No, you're talking about um, Kanat. Yes. Well, yeah, in um, in in the, the Persian world, it was Kanat um, technology. Yeah, right. You remember? I do. I I was paying attention. I've learned how. To it's a great it. Scrabble word if you have a Q but not a U. <laughs> Good point. Thank you. I need that. Um. So, like, if I'm asking the question, like. What is the ground truth as we understand it mm-hmm. about how can not appear kind of all over in different parts of the world? Then there's one type of sources that I'll find authoritative. If I'm asking the question, how did we come to believe that they started in Iran and spread over the world? Other sources would be authoritative. That is, I've used sources that may have been discredited with more recent academic writing, but they would have authority in that moment. So it's sort of like how, um, so Anna and I talk about um, the history of archaeology often. We talk about sort of what anthropologists have done through the course of anthropology. We'll talk about sort of 
what we understand to be an a an as best it can be interpreted accurate interpretation of the archaeological record but those the sources that inform that narrative are different than the sources that would inform us talking about sort of the nature of archaeology the the development of archaeology as sort of a colonial expression and so we might when we're talking about sort of the history of archaeology we'll talk about um, interpretations of the archaeological record that have since been sort of thrown out of the narrative. That's right. Uh, because they don't have, they don't have value to sort of our understanding of the past, but the, the archaeological past, but they have value to our understanding of sort of the, the history of the discipline. Am I understanding yeah. you right? Yes, exactly. And, you know, so we can start from that example, which exists kind of entirely in the scholarly sphere. And then we can push outward. I mean, in archaeology, a piece of that is because there were people who there were there were people and societies who did not record in writing their history. And therefore, we might get a skewed sense of history by only paying attention to where things are written down and not investigating further. But you can also extrapolate that to all kinds of things in our everyday world. Lots of teachers like to say that like blogs are bad sources because just anyone can write them. Well, here you two are proving, for example, that you can make a podcast. And I mean, you're just anyone, but you're also not because you do know something about your field. There's a there's a real art to kind of sussing out whether a person who expounds on a subject knows what they're talking about enough to be trusted as an expert. Yeah. When I teach, I have I often have my students do a research paper, and a lot of that comes along with teaching them how to research mm -hmm. and teaching them what's a trusted source and where to start. And um, you know, it's it's really difficult because there is so much available online now that is written with the tone of expertise. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily coming from an expert. It's just someone who has an opinion and is able to write forcefully. Right. So, yeah, it's really sometimes difficult to differentiate um, someone speaking from a knowledge based on study and based on understanding of whatever evidence, you know, given the subject, whatever that evidence is, or someone who just has a particular opinion. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and it's also interesting because within the academy there's a very constructed sense of authority so there's a lot of there's a lot of writing out there on the web especially i feel that was done early on and got linked to a lot so if you think about how the google algorithm works where kind of the the thing that differentiated google early on from other search engines was it could look at how many pages were linking to a page as a kind of assessment of quality. Like people found this, I wouldn't call it quality, usefulness or feeling of helpfulness. As okay. in, I look for King Tut, what I'm going to get back is the page that 40,000 people have linked to instead of the page that 10 people have linked to. Because right. if other people right. are pointing at it, it must be helpful in some way. Yeah, it's sort of like 40,000 like kind of votes for its usefulness. Yes, exactly. Like, and so there's like a really little nudge when people click on a link, you know, that it was helpful. 
and um and also google does like rankings of sites so if the boston public library links to a site it counts a lot more than if my web page does um and so it's a really it's a really interesting tool it has been a very helpful tool but in a way it also privileges things that have been around a long time um yeah. and so I bring, right just by default yeah i bring up king tut because there are a lot of pages that were written in like the mid 90s about king tut that come up in basic searches um I think his exhibit was on tour at that point that i maybe... think that's also true but i wasn't necessarily thinking of that it's more like think of them as fan sites i guess i would I guess you're saying the tour made the fan sites. Um, or I it was just sort of um, popular. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was an episode of Reading Rainbow. Um, uh -huh. I think that dealt with with King Tut because I remember that was that I remember that I wasn't aware he was a novelist. The brain out the nose. Um, yes. No, I, I assume he he had more like photo uh, like picture books to his. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I think so Walt Burton went to. A, a large building in New York City. Mm -hmm. And and King Tut was there. This is me remembering things from... Yeah, he was at the right? Empire State Building? <laughs> 25 years ago, I remember it. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. No, so related to that, if you were working on a research project, you were assigned a paper on things up. Where would you start? Do you have a go-to kind of either a way that you start researching or a place you go, a source that um, is a good jumping off point? Yes and no. It's more of a, a process. So I yeah. am actually, so, so I will say I'm a gigantic fan of Wikipedia, um, like just huge, huge, huge. And for example, when I'm trying to figure out how a source constructs authority, I always read at least the beginning of the Wikipedia page on a source before I like read their about us page because their about us page will be like language that makes no sense and is more meant to obscure things than not. And what is what does that do for you? Well, I it does a lot of things. So first of all, um, I mean, I'm working a lot with like U.S. government classes. It's it's in the U.S. government class at our school with 10th graders where I 
really dig into this idea that, that authority is constructed and contextual. So basically, nine-tenths of the non-government sources that you would run into refer to themselves as nonpartisan. And so being able to understand the difference between being nonpartisan and not having a political position, right? Um, so, so a source can be quite liberal or quite conservative or libertarian or, or, or without being affiliated with a party, right? Um, so, so where the website may give me some PR mumbo jumbo that doesn't make any sense. Basically, it's kind of like what we were just talking about with King Tut. The Wikipedia page is frequently written in more common parlance um, and will give me a sense of, I don't know, like if there are political leanings, uh, it'll say straight out if it's like there we talk about words like dog whistle, watchdog, um, think tank. Like you get a sense of what the thing actually is, where about us pages tend to try to obscure it. Anyway, so I love Wikipedia. What an example of many where I would not start with Wikipedia is almost any of the research that people go there for. Um, so for example, <laughs> our, our ninth graders, um, study the Safavid Empire, the Persian, um, in modern day Iran. And this school sounds great. I love my school. Thank you. I'm extremely proud to work there. Um, and uh, yeah, so they studied the Safavids and under um, the early Safavid empire. Okay. I'm not a historian, but under the early Safavid empire, there was, um, there were these people called the Kizilbosh who formed the backbone of the military. Um, and once you manage to find Kizilbosh and look it up, um, what you will discover I mean, it changes, of course, but what you'll discover is that there are like, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen linked vocabulary words in that first paragraph or two that you have never heard of before, unless you're an expert in the field. So what's naturally going to happen if you are anyone I have the honor of talking to is you will open each of those pages in a new tab. Each of those pages will have opening paragraphs with a dozen words you've never heard before. And before you know it, you have 40 Wikipedia tabs open and you're crying. I mean, on this journey sounds familiar. I, this is what I'm saying, right? Like which of us has not gotten there before? So um, I actually, and, and I know you think a lot about accessibility to sources. So here I'm going to break that rule a bit and say that like we have databases that are to which our library subscribes that are put together by publishers who publish a wide range of subject encyclopedias. So unlike, you know, World Book, um, which is great also in its time, or, or Encyclopedia Britannica, there are many, many encyclopedias that are written by scholars in the field, kind of in this idea we've been talking about of scholarship for public consumption, translation of kind of state of the field beliefs. Um, yeah, and, so this is like yeah. the, the Oxford handbook of what was it like, like archaeology, the Pacific Islands or something that yeah. we, uh, several episodes back. Like, are you talking about sort yes. of those sorts of, exactly. of encyclopedias? Okay. And they make me so happy. Um, but because they come from paper, 
that very old technology, you know, you can open a paper encyclopedia and no matter how much you push on a word, it won't take you to the entry for that word. <laughs> so those encyclopedias are generally written to be more or less freestanding. Mm-hmm. So, so they will tend to give you an introduction to a topic um, that is actually internally comprehensible without reading 45 other things. Right. They define words in line and so forth. So when there's something that's really like out of my depth and I don't know any of the vocabulary, I, that's my preferred source because I'm fortunate enough to have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I love, 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 love about them is if you have a database, say, where you're searching across hundreds or thousands of these in different fields, it's a really interesting way to get a sense of the range of topics on that field. So, for example, I had a student in an advanced history research class who knew she wanted to work on issues to do with the history of tourism. And when you just type tourism into this search engine or into this database, which is a search engine, um, you get back articles from history of the Encyclopedia of Recreation and the Encyclopedia of the Middle Ages and the Encyclopedia of like ethics, science and technology and the social history encyclopedia. And and you start to realize kind of just all the different ways that you can get at a topic and kind of just the range of perspectives that are available to you. So for me, like that's a really meaningful and worthwhile exercise. Yeah. Um, however, if you are not one of the lucky lucky people to be in a rarefied environment that gives you access to a database like, like that, um, my answer is more process based. When I talk about what expert researchers do, and by expert researchers, I mean people who are fortunate enough that they figure some of this stuff out by themselves consciously or unconsciously and therefore practice it a lot and therefore have an easier time searching, doing research than other people. A very common characteristic that expert researchers will, a strategy that expert researchers will describe is that we imagine the perfect source in our heads and like look at it and figure out how to search for it. Um, originally that meant, uh, language wise, people would, you know, imagine like, how would the person that I want to give me this information express this idea? There was actually on Medium, a great article about this. There was a journalist who was talking about, I think he was trying to research an article about people who sat next to someone on an airplane were seated next to someone who refused to sit next to someone of a different gender for religious reasons. And like all the searches he was doing, which were like airplane flight, you know, whatever he was searching in Twitter to try to find people who had had this experience. And he finally realized that the phrase my seat was the kind of phrase that consistently appeared when people were talking about this having happened. Like kind of the formal, like traditionally good search terms. Yeah. Were way too nonspecific. 
there's so many ways you can do that. So a great example, um, when I was Google search educator, I was going to Kenya uh, to Nairobi to teach some search classes in the university. And people kept telling me you should have pictures of, was it the Harambee stars who were the, um, the popular football team in town? Oh. Uh, and by football, I mean what in the United States we call soccer. Um, yes. So all the searches I was doing for the pictures, um, everything I got back were these people standing in like straight lines looking kind of grim and just like, you know, we are taking a picture now kind of images. And I thought, well, that's not nearly exciting to me um, and as exciting to me as pictures of them like running all over the place. And then I'm like, okay, so how do I make this search engine stop giving me pictures of people standing in line and instead give me people running all over the place? And I realized the difference would be that when they're running and playing the game, I could see grass. Um, and Google Image Search has color filtering. So I simply filtered for green. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> wow. This is what I'm saying. So. Okay. Um, yeah. So you you imagined like your ideal source and your yeah. idea, like your ideal source in this case was like <laughs> seeing like people actually playing soccer. And they're like, how do I get to it? Like, how like can a, I? a researchy version of the secret. You got to like manifest it well, into existence. I mean, that is what search is, right? Yeah. You can think about it as detective work. You can think about it as trying to force a machine to choke up what you really want. You can think of it as trying to trick you know, <laughs> a programmed pseudo intelligence, you know, whatever. Yes. Um, I always open Google and go, hello, nemesis. So when we when we say just Google it, um, what we're saying is like there's nothing to be done about that. And I think that's a massive disservice to kids of all ages from nine to ninety nine, because I think if we learn how to bend Google to our will, there's a lot we can do and we're a lot more in control of what we learn. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. First of all, I mean, I work with my students. We're tr still trying to figure out how to teach and learn about imagining sources. But if you can think about not like what's my fantasy source as in what's that one thing. If I were to imagine a page that had all the information I needed in one place, but more like what exists that I know about <laughs> that would answer like part of this question and what does it look like? And that can start help guiding your search 
but maybe you don't know enough yet to do that. So a lot of our education, too, that we offer is focused on the notion of stepping stone sources, which means I can pull up, well, I think Wikipedia is too hard, but kind of whatever trash I come up with kind of in my early searching, the point of it is to kind of start orienting myself and to start pulling search terms. I have a student who comes in to me and says, this was years ago, so the language was different. Okay, I was supposed to do research on illegal immigrants, and that word didn't work very well, but I found this new word, undocumented workers, and it's really great, but I can't find any of the conservative points of view about undocumented workers. But I have to say, well, that's because undocumented workers is a term that's used by a particular political position. So how do we start? Um, so we need to start like brainstorming and then adding from early reading to make a list of the different types of terms that might be used from different from the myriad of political positions out there. And then we can start using those words to pull sources. Ah, a great example is um, there is zero reason why a high school student would know the word remittances. I don't know if I do. Well, that's because of the sociology classes I took in grad school. I ran into them. So <laughs> let's do it this way. I might want to be doing some research about immigrants who send money home to their home countries from the work they do abroad. If I do the search, immigrants send money home, if the results are anything like they used to be, as I look through my results page on Google or another open search engine, I will actually notice the word remittances appears quite frequently. Mm -hmm. um, now, when we read results pages as a habit, we skip over the words we don't know. Like user studies have shown, we just skip them. If you can convert that habit to actually noticing the words you don't know, and I would say looking them up before you go any further to make sure they actually mean what they think, what you think they mean, you can do initial searching and both through reading things and even sometimes from looking at search results, you can find more expert vocabulary. And for the, as a general rule, and Anna, I think you've brought up things that are uh, examples where this is not the case. But as a general rule, the more expert your vocabulary gets, the better quality your sources become. Well, there's a difference between quality and readability is the thing. Yes. You could have a very, a very high quality research paper that is utterly impenetrable to someone who's not associated with that discipline. And that's part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, that's something I talk with my students a lot about. And I mean, I think, I think that's a necessary part of, of the education we have to give. And I think that, yeah, that part of the problem is that as long as we're like really invested in the way authority is constructed through very kind of traditional means, um, it feels like you're undermining yourself <laughs> to say some of this stuff just isn't written for you. Some of the stuff that, you know, 
I who have earned a PhD or a whatever in this field can navigate and think of as the highest quality just might not be right for you right now. And I actually think that like, I don't know, my kids in third grade, my own children in third grade were taught how to pick just right books. Like there's this whole thing in elementary school, like as I'm reading, how do I determine if, you know, I'm reading a book that's like good level for me. And I feel like we really need to extend that. And that that's worth talking a lot about. Because this is a huge challenge of navigating today's information environment. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry. Again. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's a really good point. I think that that's a, that's a really good point. And uh, that's something that, that people should keep in mind, like, rather than, um, I don't know, giving up. Like yeah. thinking ill of themselves, like right? If something doesn't make sense. Like that doesn't mean that this topic isn't for you. That doesn't mean that knowing things isn't for you. It's just a matter of, um, like that. It's sort of right. It's a two-way street between you and your sources. Like in terms of understanding and understandability, exchange of information. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, and and that makes it really hard. Um, and it makes it hard because a lot of educators are also, they, they weren't educated in this, right? Like mm. I spend, I'm pretty sure I spend something like 47 hours a day thinking about this kind of stuff <laughs> and probably about 12 days a week, but that's my job. And right. it wasn't offered as an education to other people. So, so then it feels intimidating, but there's a lot of stuff that I think is traditionally considered what one must know to be a good researcher that I totally skip to have the minutes to talk to my students about this tension uh, because mm-hmm. I think it's it's ultimately it's ultimately actually more valuable and there isn't a quick exercise to teach it so it's only practice and discussion yeah and learning to be vulnerable yeah. with each other that gets you there yeah yeah, well, let's talk a little bit more yeah. about um, about your students. And so yeah. um, you work primarily with, with secondary school students, so like, like middle and high school age yeah. students. That's correct. Um, so what have you... you... I, love, <laughs> yeah, I love them so much. Okay, yeah. Um, what have you noticed about their information consumption and their discernment, uh, perhaps compared to parents or other communities with whom you've worked previous, previously? Because you've worked with many communities yeah in in terms Um, of 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 searching and research okay I did totally crack up when I read that question I mean (laughs) I was expecting yeah um so what I think is there is much less difference than adults like to think there is okay um I think that the information economy in which we find ourselves the information environment in which we find ourselves is entirely different than what I grew up with. There is nothing more familiar about it to me than to anyone else. When I was a kid, there was such a limited number of places to get information, right? Like I got it at home, I got it in my classroom, or I went to some library or other. Maybe I went to a museum, you know, there were different things. But almost universally, Anything that had so-called good information in it was like 
pieces of paper folded in half and fastened down the spine in some manner. <laughs> that was like a visual right. signal. This is a book. This is a magazine. This is a newspaper where the pages aren't fastened. But like, right, they were these things and it was so hard to produce them. And and also there weren't that many. So we talked about them. I mean, my dad mm -hmm. was a journalist, but I remember the day he told me, like, look, there are two major weekly news magazines in the United States, Time and Newsweek. And the explanation he gave me at the time was Time leans slightly more conservative and Newsweek leans slightly more liberal. So we get Newsweek at our house. But even if they were short like that, like there were conversations we had about sources and around sources yeah. all the time. And that's simply not what happens now. Even the habit of noticing what page you're on, like where you are and who's giving you information. I mean, one reason I talk so much to my students about how does that source construct its authority is because I want them to notice what the source is. Like I'd like them to know where they are, right? I, I really don't see that much more discernment in general or understanding of okay. what a source. I mean, there are all these sources, like we were talking about the conversation. Like it just kept coming up in my search results. And there are user studies that show like the more you see something, the more you think, oh, that's a reliable source because I've heard of it. Um, and so I actually had right. to like, stop myself and go back and learn about it to figure out what the heck it was. And that's what I, I do because I'm a librarian and a researcher. <laughs> but there's no reason that any adult knows what that is any more than any kid, kind of just from a natural state of being. Now, right. that said, one of my favorite parts of my job, one of my many favorite parts of my job is, is um, I've started, uh, I have research TAs. So they are high school juniors and sometimes seniors who give me one hour a week. And they're basically mandated to help me figure out what it is that we aren't talking about with students that's causing students problems. You know, like it's really common for people teaching search to say, don't put in your whole question, just type into the search box, just type in the important words. And, and I remember I was doing an exercise with some third graders. Sorry, I was very close with some third grade teachers early in this journey. So I spent a lot of okay. my early time with third graders with very high literacy levels, that particular population. But yeah, one of my kids, third grade teachers said, come into my class and let's do some experimenting about how do you write? How do you teach kids to write a search? And I went through whatever process. And then this third grader says to me, well, my question is, why are cows called cows? And according to the, what you just told me to do, I have to cross out why and <laughs> R. And basically, the only word that's left is cow. And that's not so search cows, cows. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and that was a good moment for me to like realize that, like, to me, why isn't an important word in that structure, but to her, why was everything, right? Yeah, so it, she wanted it feels, to know why cows, not what cows. Yeah, or how or who cows, cows. or when exactly. cows. Yeah, like she, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, actually, when has a lot to do with it. <laughs> well, maybe. I guess if you look at the OED, that would be the case. Um, Oxford English Dictionary, my favorite. But there's there are just things like we say. I'm going to say as educators, but I'm going to actually expand it to as adults. There are things that again are tacit knowledge 
knowledge for us now that we have forgotten that we had to learn or figure out at some point. Right. And we just toss off these instructions. So my TA's job is to like hold up there, like here's what we need to be learning about, right? So that's how I figure out that like That's such a great tool. Oh my god, my ITAs are the best. I'm sorry, should any of my TAs ever hear this? I adore you all. Like my curriculum is so much better because I have teenagers being like, dude, no, <laughs> like, actually, that's not how they talk. But I have these teenagers being like, you're missing the point. This past year, I recruited TAs specifically to help me with my news literacy lessons, which I've been teaching since early 2016. And I had a bunch of ideas about where I wanted them to go. And they were like, we have to talk about Instagram. And I'm like, well, I'm looking through my Instagram and there's no news in it. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and they were like, no, seriously, we need to talk about Instagram. And they like open up and start showing me their Instagram. And I'm like, I don't think we're using the same tool because it doesn't look the same at all. Right. So they bring this to my attention because they're very concerned. Because like what passes for you can't see me, but I'm making air quotes around news like my my one of my TAs was like I someone in their story, which if you don't use Instagram is an impermanent thing that disappears after 24 hours in yeah. my story posted a screenshot of some notes written in a in like Apple's notes applications with that yellow uh -huh. like looks like yellow, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That said there was a coup in East Timor. And I've been looking okay. and looking and looking and I can't find it anywhere. Or like last, about a year ago, there was this huge thing with like, there was a famine in Somalia and all these people on Instagram were like fundraising to send money. And it was all about starving children. And another, I mean, it was actually uncanny because all three of my TAs who I recruited, like before we even started, came to me with different Instagram information problems. Well, and now um, TikTok. Yeah. Like yeah. With with like as having yeah. sort of the, the like recursive loop of of news and sort of uh, um, exegesis from yeah. news and um, yeah and yeah. Snapchat and 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 right right and so and so I I mean I would argue that yes there are tools that adults are less familiar with might not be using as much that are the tools from which um many of my students pull their news like information mm -hmm. but it's not that different from how i use twitter or how other people use facebook um there was a moment when a student was coming in talking about authority is constructed and contextual in one-on-one -on -one meetings we had have, where she brought in something from National Public Radio, and I asked her, well, do you know what that is? And she thought for a minute and said, isn't that that thing where old people get their news? And that was a hard moment for me, but that is an anecdote, and I don't think transcends to data. Maybe it does. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just think, I think we, I think that in general, humans are behaving similarly to each other. And are benefiting and not benefiting from having a wider information landscape than we had before. Um, 
there is a little bit. So if you're closer to my age, I remember my spouse coming home from work and saying, I read this article in the New York Times today about this thing called the World Wide Web. And I brought a copy of the article home. Shall we sit down and see what this thing is? And the newspaper article told us, like, what links were. And so there was this moment where a certain age range of adults still existing today were kind of learning together certain elements of navigating the web. But the rest of it, I mean... Yeah, it's new to everyone, and all of our attention spans are shot. So I don't know what to tell you. But I do think it's a disservice. I mean, it's valid to be worried that there's a bunch of stuff that, like, you don't fully get, but you've been alive for longer, so have some background information on which to make judgments about things that maybe younger people don't have yet. But I think it's a disservice to be like, teenagers aren't doing the hard work we did. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I was, um, so when I like drafted this question, my hypothesis was that, um, uh, like the youth are like way more on it and like way better at it. Oh yeah. No, than, than older no. people. No, um, no. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> people ask, will like raise a hand and ask me a question and then a class and I'll ask like, they'll, they'll ask like, where did this information on this random age infinity come from? And I'm like, well, where are you on the web? And the first thing that always happens is their eyes track up and they read and they're like, I'm on the Atlantic. And you're like, Oh, what's that? And they're like, uh, a thing I've heard of. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you're not wrong, but it is an ocean. Know, it's an ocean. <laughs> it's an ocean you are full right. of articles. Bizarrely. Never had that answer before you uh-huh. job. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard. I think that, that adults are scared because they think that they, they kind of like adults seem to fall into two schools. The either, Oh my God, kids these days, what's wrong with them? Blah, blah, blah. Or the, Oh my God, they know so much. And if I open my mouth and try to talk to them, then I'm going to look like an idiot. And the truth is like, we are all in this together and like taking the time to talk and to question each other. And I mean, I spend a lot of time, (laughs) I have these meetings about authority with my students. Like we spend an hour, they have an assignment where they pick four articles and I'm supposed to approve them. And we spend an hour like talking about how is the authority of each of these articles constructed? What do we understand about it? What are the connections? Um, And a lot of times I'm, like wow i have no idea whether the source is authoritative or not like we got to look at it together like here's what i notice my mind is changed sometimes in front of them this is like yeah this is a group project and we all need to do our part and that's where we're going to leave the interview for this week thank you as always for listening you can find the dirt podcast on all the places you like to listen spotify google play apple podcast and all of that you can also find us on social media on Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together along with merch and an opportunity to sponsor an episode at our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. We love you.
This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.